Well, last week I introduced you to a new series that we began titled Sermons from the Summer. These were sermons that were birthed out of things that I observed, read, or heard in terms of questions and comments around uh, summer holidays and around the fires and whatnot. Some of them made by adults, some of them made by kids. And they were really good questions and really important questions for the church in terms of our unity and how we move and exist amongst one another. Last week we did, what does the Bible say about tattoos? And if you missed that sermon, please listen to that. But this week we're doing, what does the Bible say about clothing? Clothing, basically our appearance and how are we to dress as, as Christians, as followers of Christ? Now some might say, well, why would you spend so much time preaching on that? Does that even really matter? Well, let me answer that question by sharing the experience over the summer. So I was on holidays in Lake Kukanusa with the McMillan family, Mark and Cheryl and their grandchildren and their daughters, and we were there having a great time. Every day was in excess of 30 degrees. In fact, the coldest day we had was plus 30, the hottest was 37. The only reprieve from that kind of heat is to basically go on the lake and get in the water and get in a boat and try to get the, the natural air conditioning that the water provides. Well, one day we decided to go to an inflatable water park, an inflatable water park for the kids to play and cool off. And it's one of those water parks that's obviously in the water and it's the kids that have a, a blast jumping off into the, into the lake and whatnot. Well, the kids are playing and at the end of the play, we thought, let's go for ice cream because, you know, ice cream works well on a 30 degree weather, and so let's go for that too. So we go and line up at the dock for this ice cream. Well, it was a very busy day because it happened to be the weekend and not a weekday, and lots of people were there. The lineups were fairly long, and right in front of Mark and I and the kids as we were lining up was a young woman, probably around 21, with her boyfriend. And just to give you a help with this, those of you who are gifted in sewing, if I gave you dental floss and three eye patches, you would have accomplished the identical thing with the bathing suit. Um, Mark looked at me and he said something like this, what are we supposed to do with that? And we got into a conversation and then we had this great conversation, does God even hold her accountable for the temptation that she brings men? Okay, so as we're going back and forth, I thought, man, like this is something, like this is a really good conversation. And our boys are with us, and Janice was with us too, she was privy to all of it. And so, how do we deal with this? And, you know, when you spend a lot of time on the beach, there's lots of situations that are like that. That's not unique. But these things move beyond the beach, they move into the community and into the church life as well. And so, it's really important because this is an issue, just like tattoos, that can divide a church. It divides churches. I know of stories of people where women have been accused of being dressing like a slut from one Christian to another. Um, I know that these are very uh, rampant issues. My wife listens to Felicia Masonheimer on her podcast. Uh, she had a, a, a podcast on modesty, and she goes, you need to listen to it, so I listened to it. And the first thing she said was she wasn't that popular in the world, like in terms of like a huge following. One day she preaches on modesty on her podcast. She had 90,000 hits that day and it ended up in a massive debate online and she had to take her blog down because it was just causing so much disruption. So please hear me when I say this. 
I'm not bringing this issue to you to stir the pot. I'm not here to, to divide the church, accomplish the, or fail to accomplish the very thing I'm preaching it for. I'm here to maintain unity, not to destroy it. At the same time, just because it's a hot topic, it doesn't mean that we don't have the right to discuss it. And what better place to do it than a safe place like the church environment here? These issues all challenge us, and we need to walk through it biblically. Now, if in the end you feel that I don't interpret the scriptures properly, then the best place to do that is to take me for coffee. I'll pay, and we'll discuss it. I'm open. So here's a sermon outline. Where do clothes come from, and why do we wear them? Number two, what principles should we consider when choosing to dress the way we do? And three, what does wisdom and love say to Genesis House in regards to how we choose to respond to those who dress differently than us? So this is the three questions we're going to look at this morning. So let's look at the first question. Where do clothes come from and why do we wear them? Let me begin by saying this. In God's original design of humanity, clothing was never intended. In God's original design, clothing was never intended. Let's pick this up in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 and 25. God has created man and woman, and so now they exist on day six of creation. And this is what he says. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. In the original creation, man and woman had no clothes on, and all the men said, Amen. <laughs> yeah. So, we, um, this is uh, the reality of, of life. Now, we might think, well, that's too far-fetched. Like, how, how is that even, like, uh, that doesn't even make sense. Like, how is that even possible? Well, it's not as far-fetched as you think. You see, one of the things is that there was no shame, no shame in sin in the original creation. And so look at children, about the age of four, maybe five, four or five and under, and they have no shame in being naked. So we actually see examples in that in our, in our own life. Uh, in fact, as those of you who have kids, you remember the stages when at two and three, one of the fun things they could do was run around naked. And they do it in front of people at the park, like at the beach, they didn't care. So there's an innocence um, that is there that God intended around, like as in young, young children. Well, just imagine that same innocence being present in adults. And it's because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden and their failure to obey God that led to this lack of um, innocence. But things change, as you know, in chapter 3. De uh, Satan tempts Eve to break God's only command, and they do so. And let's look at what is said in verse 6 and 7. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So what we see here is after a recognition of, uh, that they've, well, after they'd sinned, they felt a recognition of the lack of innocence. They felt guilt and shame. They knew they were naked. And so they attempted to clothe themselves with basically plant material. 
I call this the first religious act in history. The first religious act in history. Man's attempt to deal with shame and guilt and sin on their own terms. It's man's attempt to deal with sin on their terms. What does God think about this? He says, that's not going to work. I never created man to to deal with sin on their own terms, and your attempt to do so is substandard. So what does God do? Look at 321. 321. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God says this, listen, the only appropriate way to deal with sin is blood has to be shed. Blood has to be shed. If he decides to make clothing out of skin there and not plant material, that means the animals that were created for God, for Adam and Eve's enjoyment, are now being used to atone for sin, to cover for sin. And so God starts to clothe people, and so the blood, of the, as it killed the animals, and the skins became the byproduct of this, the blood was representative, that when you clothe yourself, it's because you, didn't, you broke my command, but I provided a substitution in love for you to cover your sin. My sac- I made a sacrifice so that you and I can still be in relationship. And this is super important, but let's remember this, Hebrews makes it clear, Hebrews makes it clear that the blood of goats and animals and things like that are only a shadow of, of basically what was to come. They were, they, made, they were a reminder, animals were a reminder of the sins that happened every year. They didn't actually atone for it in the, in the fullest sense. It took Jesus Christ on the cross to do what animals could not do, which was to remove sin completely. And so the Lord provided Jesus at Calvary so that we could be fully free of sin, shame, and guilt. So that's where clothes come from. It comes from the Garden of Eden and God's uh, substitutionary atonement for Adam and Eve. So what's the next question we need to answer? It's this one. What principles should we consider when choosing to dress the way we do? How should we choose? Well, I can say this, that as followers of Christ, we are warned not to make our appearance the source of our identity. So whatever clothes you choose, that is not to be the source of your identity. Not the source of your identity. Now, God is not against men and women being attractive. The Bible recognizes when people are beautiful. Rachel, in Genesis 29 and verse 17, is described this way. She's beautiful of of form and face. She's beautiful of form and face. Notice the distinction. Joseph, in Genesis 29 and verse 6, is described as a handsome man in form and appearance. So the Bible has no problem recognizing when someone's attractive. And and outsiders recognize them as such. If God does that, that's okay for us too to recognize that, and it's okay to be to seek to be attractive in our appearance. The problem is when our identity becomes wrapped up in their source of choosing to appear a particular way. It's this idea that if I can be noticed by others for the way I look, I'm a somebody. If I can be noticed for how I dress and how I look, then I'm the stuff. 
And we find Old Testament and New Testament examples of this. So let's look at Isaiah 3.16, verses 16 to 26. The Lord says, the women of Zion, which is the women of Israel, are proud. Now he's going to define why their pride, or where their pride comes from. He says, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. In that day the Lord will snatch away their anklets, their headbands, their crescent necklaces, their earrings, their bracelets and veils, their signet rings and nose rings, the fine robes and the capes and cloaks, the purses and mirrors and the linen garments and tiaras and shawls. Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. And of course, he's talking about the uh, exile that was going to come through the, the capture of the, the, the uh, nations for basically Israel's complete rejection of God. But part of the rejection of God was the women placing their identity in, in who, they, who they were in terms of their looks and trying to use that uh, in terms of their influence. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, a New Testament example. He says, I want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, which means respectfully, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles, gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Again, Paul's not warning here about having nice clothes or wearing nice things. It's what these women were trying to convey with their clothing. They basically were saying this, my status in the church is wrapped up in how I dress. And remember, remember that in the church in Ephesus, um, there was a lot of different things going on, but one of them was this economic disparity between the rich and the poor. And so the women would come to church all adorned up and dressing in a particular way to really show off and say, look how important I am. So there was an economic wealth disparity and making the poor in the church look like they were less than. So again, it wasn't the clothing that was inherently evil. It was getting in the way of the gospel and the aim of the gospel in Ephesus. The gospel was to unite people regardless of status. And economic wealth was never to be also a, a, a mitigating factor. Whether you're rich or poor, you are all united in Christ. And the women here had placed their identity in their clothing and their economic prowess and not in their character and in their hope in God. I'll never forget this. Uh, while training two ladies in the gym um, a number of years ago, uh, these, these women loved Lululemon clothing. And Michelle, you weren't one of them, by the way. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah, there was two women. <laughs> but uh, there were two women, and they were Lululemon lovers. They just loved all the clothing and whatnot. And um, one day, a guy walked into the gym, um, uh, dressed very much like, say, Mark or Roger would, uh, you know, like a ball cap and uh, camouflage clothing and stuff. And I heard them snickering and making fun of this fellow and they were making fun of him because of the clothing he was wearing and because he wasn't dressed in the way they thought was created an identity and was appropriate they went after him 
The crazy thing is I knew this guy and his character was solid. He was a Christian fellow too. And see, that's what God's looking for, his character. It's clear in Isaiah, he's looking for that, but it's also clear in 1 Timothy. He says, instead, clothe yourselves with good deeds, with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. First Peter, in chapter 3 and verse 3, handles this really well. Summarizes both, uh, both texts of Isaiah and Timothy. He says, don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. Why I love this verse is you know who he uses as an example of this after he makes this comment? Sarah, Abraham's wife. Do you remember how she looked as a woman? She was an absolute beauty. Abraham was so worried about her beauty that he didn't want to, he, he lied about his relationship to her to protect her from the pagan kings. And sure enough, he was right in that everyone noticed her beauty and wanted her and would take them into her harem. But Sarah was a beautiful, beautiful woman, worldwide recognition for her beauty. And yet, what does God highlight? Her gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. One other principle we can follow is simply this. That as followers of Jesus, we are warned not to make our appearance a means of seduction. So not only is our appearance not to be the source of our identity, it's not to be a means of seduction. Let's look at Proverbs 6. This is what um, Solomon's saying, and he's actually speaking to, to, his, to children, like, or like you know, young adults, I guess, about listening to their commandments. So this is the commandments coming from the parents. For this teaching is a light, and correction and instruction are the way to life, keeping you from the immoral woman, from the smooth tongue of a promiscuous woman. Now listen, do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. The key phrase there is, don't let her captivate you with her eyes. What is she doing? She wants you to find her, so what she's doing is she's using her looks to lure you in so that you become basically ensnared. You bite the bait. So this woman of Proverbs 6 is using her beauty to her advantage to attract men. To attract men. But she's doing it in the wrong way because she's an immoral woman. So you know what the outcome she's hoping for in the end. Again, the warning here is not against clothing per se or being attractive. The issue is the aim and desire behind one's appearance. It's the aim and desire behind why you're dressing a particular way. So what about men? Did the Bible seem to forget about them? The commands here are to women, primarily. Well, the principle would still apply to men. It's just that the Bible recognizes, and so do we in life, that men and women struggle with different things to different degrees. It's not that we both can't struggle in these things, but men have different struggles than women. And trust me, we have a lot. So for example, when, when it talks about lust in the Bible, men are the ones who are addressed. 
Do women struggle with that? Sure they do, but men are the primarily ones who are known for that. They're probably, they're no, that's why when, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, if a man looks at another woman with lust who's married, or he goes after a married woman, I should say, in lust, he's committed adultery in his heart. So again, he, the Bible recognizes that men struggle with that. Well, women, again, are the primary ones who struggle with making their appearance, their identity. And the clothing stores recognize this. That's why every shop you go into, even if it's unisex, have two-to-one ratios of women's clothing to men. <laughs> because there's multiple ways you can fancy yourself up, and we're limited, and we don't even care to the same degree as you do. Again, it's not that we, can, we can't be lured into this. It's just that we don't struggle to probably the same degree as the Bible warns against the women primarily. So let's look at, uh, well actually before we move to question three, you, you would probably agree with me and say, Andrew, the principles are clear and I think we'd be all unanimous on this. We'd also be unanimous on the comment here and Timothy that we should probably dress modestly and with decency. Here's where the problem hits though. We all define modestly differently. <laughs> I can, well, let's do a little test and don't raise your hands but pretend you are, okay? I'll give you a scenario. I put a picture of a woman or wearing a turtleneck up to here. I ask you all to raise your hands and say, how many think you think that she's dressed modestly? I bet you 100% of the church would keep their hands up. 100% of the church would say, with a turtleneck, that is respectable and modest. What I would do then is every slide, reduce, the, reduce one inch off the turtleneck. And I would ask you to put your hand down when you thought that modesty, the, the line of modesty was crossed. And what you'd notice that everybody's hands would start dropping at different times in, in that slideshow, wouldn't it? One inch, a hand would go down. Six inches, a hand would go down. Eight inches, a hand might still be up. And you'd be looking around going, how in the world do you not think that that's modest? <laughs> Let's do another one. A dress. A dress down to the ankle, you'd say, modest. Everyone would say, hands up. If I started eliminating one inch from it, and I say, when do you think it becomes immodest? The hands would start dropping at different places on the slideshow because you'd say you've crossed the line. And every single one of us in here would have a different of, difference of opinion on that. Isn't that important? So we understand the principles. We are all on the same page, but, the, but we have an underlying belief of how that's achieved. And so we all have rules, I guess you could say, about how to dress. We all have rules. Every single one of us does. Even with men, if, we had a, if I had a, a t-shirt on, you know, down to here, it would probably be considered respectable. But if I kept dropping an inch off the arm and the tank top got thinner and thinner, someone might say, oh, I don't know, Andrew, I think you're crossing the line with maybe how much skin you're showing in a particular setting. And so some people wouldn't be comfortable with the tank top I was wearing, and some people would be fine with it. We all have strong opinions within the Christian circles as to what's appropriate as a follower of Jesus. So what is wisdom? 
What does wisdom and love say to Genesis House in regards to how we choose to respond to those who dress differently than us? Well, I'm taking you right back to the same passage we looked at in Romans 14 on tattoos. I apologize for those of you who this is a repeat for, but if you're like me, you need to hear things more than once in order to retain it, and you can't hear this enough, and some of you weren't here for this sermon, so this will be new. I weren't here for the sermon on tattoos, so this will be a new thing for you. But let me give you a reminder of the context in Romans 14. In Romans 14, the church is from a diverse background. You have Jews who believe that certain foods and certain festivals and days are important to observe, and others, like the Gentiles, who couldn't care about those food laws in those particular days. So if you're a Jew, the Sabbath is really important. The most holy day of the week to observe is Friday night at 6 p.m. till Saturday night at 6 p.m. You do no work on that day. If you're a Gentile, that means nothing to you. It means nothing to you. Or it could, if you're a Gentile, that became a proselyte, meaning you converted to Judaism. And so now you're a a Gentile who's converted to Judaism, and so that Sabbath is important to you as well. So how do you get along with one another in a church when you both think that one day is important and one day is not? Well, Paul has to address these things. And so his first principle is this. Accept one another's expression of faith despite personal differences. Accept one another's expression of faith despite personal differences. Let's turn to Romans 14. Verse 1, now accept one another who's weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that they may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So in the context here, notice that Paul says that these issues that you're dealing with when it comes to food are matters of opinions. Circle the word opinion. This is not about sin. When it's sin, there is no matter of opinion. It's clear cut. So if you're stealing, you're not to accept another person in the faith. If it's lying, you're not to accept another one another person in the faith. You're to gently and lovingly correct them and go after the sin. Paul through Corinthians does that. He actually goes after the sin issues in Corinth. But these are matters of opinions. They're, they're preferences. The NIV describes them as disputable matters. So what, what Paul does then is really say... There's two categories of people who express opinions in a church. There's those in verse 1 described as weak in the faith. And in chapter 15 in verse 1, there's those described as strong in the faith. So in 14.1, you have weak in the faith. And in 15.1, you have strong in the faith. And they both have opinions as to how to live out the Christian life. Now, weak and strong have nothing to do with inferiority or superiority in terms of who you are as a Christian or your commitments to Jesus. A person who's weak in their faith can have an incredible faith in the Lord and is actually, could be, actually could be your pastor or your elder or your leader in a church in particular areas. So it has nothing to do with spiritual inferiority. It has to do with um, 
the freedom they have to express um, things that are basically Paul considers opinion related. So the weak person is described as eating vegetables only and the strong is one who can eat all things. So in the context then, if you look at the PowerPoint, the weak hold to the conviction that something is inappropriate to partake in even though God would permit it. So there's a more conservative approach to the Christian life. A strong person would hold to the conviction that something is inappropriate to partake in as, or would hold to the conviction that something is appropriate as God would permit it. So they have a more liberal approach. So those in clothing, for example, who believe that the longest dress and the highest turtleneck, for example, or the most amount of uh, coverage on a man's arm um, was the fullest clothing possible, would be considered more on the weak side. They would hold the conviction that something's inappropriate and have a more conservative approach to clothing. Those who hold the conviction that something is appropriate would have a more liberal approach to clothing. But here's what happens in the church, has happened and might happen in Genesis House. When we see people dressed in a particular way, we automatically make assumptions about why that person is dressed that way. So let's say you see someone who's revealing more skin than another person, you would say, I know why they're doing that. They're trying to attract attention. Or they're trying to, like, you know, um, find their identity and who they are in their clothing and not God. Or they're just trying to show off or whatever. We ascribe motivation to the person. And you might be right. Nine out of ten women or men might dress in a particular way and they might think like that. You might be right. The problem is you might be wrong, especially within the Christian community. And you can't assume they're right and then ascribe motivations to someone because you just don't know their heart and where they're at with the choices they made. Did you know that every list that disqualifies someone in the New Testament from, self, from fate from heaven have to do with moral character? Look at Romans 1 with me quickly, since we're in Romans. Look at Romans 1. And we're going to start in verse 25. Sorry, 28. Romans 1, 28. And just as they did not see fit according... Uh, sorry. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, Malice, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Notice what's not in the list. Clothing. Tattoos. They're not there. This is because this is about moral character. Back to 1 Timothy and 1 Peter. What, what is God looking for? It's the, the internal beauty of someone. That they, they live in appropriateness to how they live out their life for God. It's about their love for others and love for God. We might see other people wearing something we may not approve of. 
But what a person wears cannot be attached to sin and of itself. Let me say that again. You might not approve of what someone wears, but what a person wears cannot be attached to a sin in and of itself. You can wear the longest dress in church, the longest t-shirt, have no makeup, watch G-rated movies, listen to only worship music, and still not love God or others. That's Romans 1. So how do you choose to what, for what clothing you wear then? Oh, all right, so let's move on. You choose according to your own personal convictions before God. That's Romans 14 again. I'm going to read verses 5 to 8. One person regards one day or one kind of clothing above another. One regards every piece of clothing alike. Each person must be fully convicted in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. Now watch the for the Lord happen over and over here. For the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord. He does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself. And not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Again, for the Lord, for the Lord, in terms of matters of opinions. How we choose to dress and express ourselves in modesty, um, or how we determine what modesty is, I should say, is between us and God. Now, it's probably good to have good wisdom and talk to other people and have them weigh in in your life, but ultimately the expression is between you and the Lord. You live according to how you feel you're going to honor Him. And what I love about Romans is we have two people in complete opposition to one another and how they think that should be expressed. And Paul says they're both acceptable in Christ's sight. So one guy observes Sabbath, one guy doesn't. And Paul says they're both good in God's eyes. One guy eats a particular meat sacrifice to idols, buys it in a marketplace because he gets a discount. He eats it and God says that's okay. And then the other guy says, I can't partake in that. That's not okay for me. And God says, that's okay. One person chooses to wear uh, a shirt that's one inch lower than somebody else. That's okay. According to the Lord. We have to accept one another. And so I should go back to this. The warning to the conservative Christian is this. Do not be judgmental. I.e., man, you're irresponsible in the clothes that you're wearing. You know, wearing clothes like that, you're not really a genuine Christian. That's the warning to the weak person, to not to be judgmental, conservative person. The warning to the strong person is to condemn them. Man, I can't believe you're so uptight. You think you have to wear a dress like that? Or you have to wear, like, you know, a turtleneck every time you go out anywhere and it's plus 35? Like, you're so legalistic. You're so uptight. Like, just loosen up a little. So the strong person is a condemner, the weak person is a judgmental person, and Paul says, do not do that, because those people are living for the Lord. He died for them, regardless of their opinions. Principle three, be sensitive to your audience. You can be sensitive to your audience. 1 Corinthians 9. Even though I'm a free man with no master, this is Paul speaking, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. 
When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law, even though I'm not subject to the law. I did this so I could bring to Christ those who were under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I live too apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. Now what's the law of Christ? According to the scriptures, love. That's the law of Christ is love. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weaknesses, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share his blessings. Modesty is a very much a contextual issue. It's very much a contextual issue. If I go to the swimming pool, modesty and, and requires one thing in terms of how I want to express that, um, and I have to think through that context. But if I go to a funeral, I'm obviously going to change my attire from the swimming pool. It's contextual. You go to an African tribe. For women in those tribes, there's no seduction or identities things when they're, when they're absolutely topless. In our culture, that would dictate something different. So I want to be sensitive to our audience. I'll tell you a quick story about me visiting a colony, a Hutterite colony in Saskatchewan last month. Uh, we're getting ready, the boys and I, to go to Saskatchewan, and we're going to stop off at this colony that Jeff uh, does the financial counseling for. And um, I, uh, I'm getting dressed, and it's plus 30 that day. It's going to be a hot one again in Saskatchewan. I'm going to a Hutterite colony, and I got all the boys dressed like in shorts. And I think it was probably the Holy Spirit, like, and all of a sudden I thought, wait a minute, that's going to be not appropriate for the colony. And I thought, well, let's not assume anything, so I phoned the minister. I said, hi, Walter, Andrew here, I'm coming to, and we're coming, like, this morning. I just want to double check with you, though, right? Like, you probably don't want the boys wearing shorts, eh? And he goes, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. I was like, perfect. Okay. Boys, you're putting on jeans. Why? Why, Dad? I said, I'll explain in the car as we drive to the colony. Okay? We get there, and it was awesome. Full embrace. But here's what's cool. About three hours later, after touring the colony, Walter says, do you guys want to go swimming at the, at the South Saskatchewan River? Perfect. All the boys take off all their Hutterite clothing and strip down into a bathing suit. And all the boys are changing their bathing suits, and they're all playing in the water it's contextually important. But to come back to the mess hall where dinner is served is not appropriate to wear those bathing suits. Those kids went back into their clothing to go back into that arena. So again, we're just being sensitive to the audience. It was good for my boys to learn this, that they have the freedom in Christ to dress how they want. But because we're going to a colony in which clothing is super important, for the sake of love for our brothers, were going to be sensitive to their audience. And they dictated when it was appropriate to be in shorts, not us. And you know what? It was an awesome time. The boys loved it. And we've been welcomed back. One last thing. And I'm going to hit a heavy one here. What about Mark's and I's discussion? Back to the dock in Kukanusa. Is the woman who dresses that way responsible for a man when he lusts after her? 
I would say no. No. In Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to turn there. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus deals with lust. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Notice what he puts the, on, the onus on. He doesn't say that law doesn't apply depending how beautiful you deem a woman. He says, if you look at her with lust, you're the one who's responsible, not the woman. Not the woman. God keeps the men accountable for their own eyes and their own heart. And I'll be honest, guys, we can lust over anything. I've had times, like, or like, I mean, um, well, I'll just take the word lust out of it, but like with Janice and I, she doesn't have to wear nothing, basically nothing, for me to be attracted to her. There's been times where she's been in track pants and a hoodie in the, in the, in the, in the kitchen, and all of a sudden I'm interested in her beyond the normal, and she hasn't worn anything to, to warrant it. We can last over anything, and the problem also is that beauty's in the eye of the beholder, right? We all, some like short hair, some like long hair, some like blonde, some like brown, some like, you know, tall, some like short, some like eyes, like, you know, with makeup on them, some don't, and it goes on and on and on. And likewise for men, some people like, you know, men who are in really, really good shape, some don't care. Some like tall men, some like short men, it doesn't know, some people don't even care. We can lust over anything. The woman's issue and the man's issue that the Bible points out is what's going inside of you. If a woman or a man is trying to lure the opposite sex into being attracted to them for seductive reasons or for their appearance, then God has a problem with that. But the issue of, of God holds you responsible for the way you approach someone else. And so when Mark says, what are we supposed to do with that? Does God hold her responsible? He holds her responsible in this way. If she's dressing that way to, for her identity or to seduce men, absolutely. But if Mark and I fall into lust and adultery over her, God doesn't hold her accountable one bit. She's accountable for another reason. We're accountable for our own conviction or for our own commitments to our own spouses. So, a big one. So what are we to learn? As followers of Jesus, we are not to make our appearance the source of our identity nor means of seduction. So in clothing, choosing to appear the way we do, we are not to make our appearance the source of our identity nor a means of seduction. 1 Timothy 2, 1 Peter 3, Isaiah 3, Proverbs 6. Number two, in order for unity to maintain within Genesis House, there must be an allowance for each individual within our church to express their decisions regarding clothing without judgment or contempt. Don't judge a person or, or condemn a person based on what they're wearing. That person, after hearing the sermon today, or even before this today probably, was doing, dressing accordingly to how they thought they should honor God. How they should honor God and being sensitive to the environments in which they are in. 
So we're not to judge regarding clothing and not to condemn people in terms of clothing. Lesson three, the motivating factor behind each of our decisions in regards to clothing must be our own personal relationship with Jesus Christ and how we choose to honor him. That has to be the number one thing that determines how we choose to do it. And so again, when I go to the Hutterite colony, I am completely free to wear whatever I want in Jesus' eyes. But uh, to the Hutterite colony, that would be completely insensitive. And I would uh, not do the gospel any favors. Finally, I love this one. Whenever you can remember, use the opportunity when clothing yourself to thank God for his love for you. Let me explain that. Why are you putting on clothes? Because God made a provision for sin. There were animal skins killed. Animals were killed to shed blood for Adam and Eve's sin. Clothing, when you put your clothes on, yeah, it's nice to like, look good and feel good and stuff. But I mean, use the opportunity to say, you know what, Lord? The original design was for me not even to be wearing these. But we all have fallen short of God's glory. And so as I dress myself this morning, it reminds me of the gospel. Reminds me of the gospel and how you cared and loved for us at Calvary. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the day, and we thank you for our time together. We are grateful, Lord, that we could study this and come to scripture over it. And Lord, I'm sure we've been all given something to think about. You know that I've been wrestling with this for at least two months since this event happened, and being prepared for today's sermon. So. There may be more to learn from my end, and I'm happy to hear it from our congregant members. Bring that to my attention, and hopefully things I've said today from your word will spark new thinking in others as well. So we're here to strengthen one another, to encourage one another, and to help each other be built up into the body of Christ that you intended. So we give you thanks for the morning. In Jesus' name.